HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network Broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. What's your favorite slurp? Miso udon? Ramen? Pho? Or grandma's chicken noodle soup? No question about it. It's taken over. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And indeed... Slurping noodles and broth have never been more popular than they are today. And, of course, one of the big popular items is the Vietnamese soup called pho. 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 Doesn't matter how you say it. It is delicious, and it is indeed spreading across the country like hot broth. <laughs> My guest today is Andrea Nagoyan, and she knows a lot about pho. And she fell in love with this iconic soup long before it became the rage in, in the United States. Andrea is a Vietnamese-born American teacher, food writer, cookbook author, and lives in the San Francisco area. She is an expert on Asian cuisine and cooking methods author, freelance writer, editor, cooking teacher, consultant, and she has over five cookbooks to her credit as well, plus articles galore. The newest book is called The Pho Cookbook by 10 Speed Press. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much, Linda, for having me on today. Well, you know, it's <laughs> so popular is this dish of noodle soup. I can't, I, you know, go figure. I mean, every you wrote or they excerpt Lucky Peach excerpted a, um, a piece from your book 
to be a headliner for one of their issues. And every food magazine out there and blogger and, and food e-magazine has written extensively about this. What I mean, right on the heels, of course, the ramen craze or together with the ramen craze, what do you attribute this wild popularity of, of these noodle soup dishes? Well, you know, I think that noodles and broth are just always going to be a favorite. And as you started out, you're like, you know, you said, what do you, what's your favorite? And then our favorites, foods are things that comfort us, right? Right. And what we grew up with. And so even when, after we came here to the United States, I was like really intrigued by American food. And so um, we would buy canned Campbell's chicken noodle soup because I was like, (laughs) what is it that, you know, is so intriguing to Americans about um, chicken noodle soup, and I tried it, and I was like, well, it's, it's, it's interesting, but it doesn't compare to my chicken noodle soup, oh, <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> and I think that it's really, there's something extremely wonderful, number one, just about, you know, slurping up warm broth, and then you've got your springy, you know, uh, twirly noodles, and it's, it's good for when you feel good. And you want to just have, you know, something that's um, familiar. It's also great when you're feeling kind of down. And maybe the weather's dreary and it's cold like winter right now and you need some sunshine and there's pho. And even when you're hungover or have a stomachache, pho's there to help you out. And I think that that it um, is popular right now because people are interested in exploring um, Asian flavors. And um, I'm one to say that, hey, you know what, there are a lot of noodle soups for you to take a look at um, in Asia because Asia is humongous. And so, you know, don't just put ramen aside as if it was yesterday, but mm-hmm. add pho to your ramen knowledge and then go on to some other ones because Lord knows, you know, there were a lot of, of noodles to explore um, in broth throughout Asia. And I think the thing with, with pho that's so intriguing to people is that, it's like the ultimate have-it-your-way food. Right. That was so, that intrigued me the very first time I ever had it years ago um, down in Chinatown, actually. And I said, well, now what's all this other stuff? And they said, oh, just put in what you want as you like it. And that was the freedom to, you know, to adjust something that was served to you was wonderful. And that's very Vietnamese, too. It's it's interesting because I've been to Japan to research other books, and I remember um, this was the time when I was researching my tofu book. And um, so for Asian tofu, I wanted to find out what, you know, what it was all about. And so I had a Japanese cultural ambassador um, take me out to lunch, and he went through all of these, like, you must hold your chopsticks this way, you must hold your bowl this way, and I was like, holy smokes, in Vietnam, we don't have those sorts of rules. <laughs> it's, it's like, here's the food, and you can um, be liberal in terms of how you enjoy it. So, you know, they're going, there are pho fights in Vietnam, okay? I mean, like, there are regional pho fights if you're a diehard pho person, and we can talk about that in a yeah, few minutes. Yeah. You know, but, but by and large, you can add whatever condiments you want to it. Um, you know, it's it just, what's important is that you enjoy it. And with something like pho, you know, you can call your toppings, and then you get the whole pile of garnishes at your table, and you can add what you want. And you don't have to add anything if you don't want. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to add extra fish sauce or sriracha to or hoisin sauce to your bowl, no one's going to stop you. Well, what about and what about the broth? Is it a as 
um, long, a, a long cooking, deep broth that we experience in some of the other Asian dishes? You know, it depends. Um, it, traditionally, it was a long broth, so a long simmered bone broth, essentially. And um, so, yeah, I like to say, well, it's also cap. People are interested in pho because it's a bone broth concept, but it's a bone broth that people were making bone broth because they had scraps, and I think that's what a lot of people well, were doing. And that's past. and that's. I guess that's really where I want to go. Um, first of all, when you first came to the United States with your family, when you were how old? Six years old. I was six, yes. Yeah. So did you actually remember eating pho and before you came? Yes. And um, I was fortunate to be a chubby kid in Vietnam, which, you know, is a developing country undergoing a lot of political crisis. And um, one of my most vivid memories is sitting in one of my parents' favorite pho joints. And, and in Vietnam back then and some parts now you know, you eat, you sit on like you know low benches or chairs and and they're like baby chairs mm-hmm. and, you, and you're like you know kind of like bent over your bowl of soup and um we had a phone joint and i was able to you know use both chopsticks and spoon to get to the bottom of the bowl and i was five years old and mm-hmm. i was just like totally hooked yeah. on eating pho and that was really, you know, I have um, a lot of strange memories about that time in my life, and perhaps that um, because the Vietnam was undergoing so much turmoil that the things I remember tend to gravitate towards things that were ballast for me um, later in life, and um, food and pho was definite, were definitely two of those things. Well, that yeah, the curative powers of noodle soup for sure. I mean, yeah, that was the most tumultuous time when you were... Um, when you and you left with your family, uh, so first before we go any further, let's let's get over the whole pronunciation thing because I know there are people who still want to say pho, and if you say pho, they go what, <laughs> and if you say pho, they don't know what it is either. So there are actually different ways of writing it that make it pronounced differently. Correct. Correct. So Vietnamese um, was traditionally based upon like Chinese characters. And then you have um, Portuguese and French missionaries who came and they wanted to proselytize, correct? I mean, they had their interests. And the best way that they could proselytize was in a Romanized form. <laughs> so they took the Chinese language, um, which, the, which the Vietnamese had already tweaked to uh, fit Vietnamese pronunciation in Vietnamese terms. And um, so the missionaries Romanized things. And so they added all of these diacritics, so all of those accent marks, those funny little things, you know, sometimes they look like a roof, we say in Vietnamese, um, or a question mark. So with regard to the word pho, so um, in the book I describe Vietnamese language as, so if you just have P-H-O, like the way we say, see it in English, in the English dictionary now, because pho is in the English dictionary, okay. so we don't have to put those diacritics on there. So that is just pronounced pho. And if you add a little side hook to that O, it becomes pho. And if you add a question mark to the top of the O that has a side hook, it becomes pho. So when you 
say the word fa, and if you want to really impress a native speaker, you always want to ask it like you say it as if you you're uh, you have an upward lilt in your intonation. So as an interrogative, <laughs> so you would say, <laughs> "I would like a bowl of fa." Fa, okay, fa. I <laughs> and got just it. And kind of hold it at the end there, and, okay. <laughs> and give them a serious look, and then they'll probably be very impressed and give you whatever you want, and maybe even some extra. <laughs> well, no matter how you call it, people. People know by seeing the uh, um, the name on the on the front of the little joints, and they know what they're getting, and that's the important thing. Uh, but it was not always around the way it is now. And you were talking about, um, I mean, people made broths and soups, of course, all the time. And but tell me a little bit about what you found out. You actually went and traveled back to your birthplace to learn about the birth of Fa. <laughs> What do we know about the beginnings? It's um, the beginnings of pho are as murky as a bad pho broth, to tell you the truth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but because you know the the Vietnamese wrote certain things down, but not everything, and um, and certainly food was not like one of the you know preeminent things that people wrote about, uh, unfortunately in Vietnam. But what we do know is that um, pho originated around the. Um, the beginning of the 20th century. So, you know, late, you know, 1800s, beginning early part of the 1900s, and um, in northern Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So we're talking around Hanoi. And um, so the Hanoians, um, Hanoi is the capital of Vietnam. The Hanoians will always kind of like claim, fall is ours. Mm-hmm. And um, it was uh, a matter of circumstances of, of cultures rubbing shoulders because the French were um, in charge back then, and they um, began to slaughter cows in Vietnam because they wanted to have um, beef to eat. And the Vietnamese were not used to eating beef. They were more, if they ate um, beef sort of food, it was water buffalo. And beef and water, cows and water buffalo were draft animals, work animals. So you, you know, you don't want to. Who would want to kill your vehicle, kind of thing. And so um, there were these scraps and, you know, the tough cuts as well as bones. And the um, Vietnamese didn't really have a taste for beef back then. So there were a lot of beef sales, as you can imagine, Mm -hmm. by the butchers. Mm -hmm. And um, street vendors who were already preparing a noodle soup with um, broth, and uh, water buffalo and round rice noodles, like vermi- thick vermicelli noodles, they um, saw an opportunity to do something new, and the beef was constantly sort of like on sale. And so they made a switch from water buffalo to beef. So then you had like this new beef noodle dish, and somewhere along the line, the round rice noodles, the round vermicelli became, became flat um, huh. rice noodles, like sort of like pad thai kind of mm-hmm. rice noodles. And so the so there are a lot of people who say, oh, gosh, you know, pho is a French thing because it sounds like pot au pho. But it really is like this this situational thing of, of cultures coming together. And the term pho um, from a definition back in the 1930s in a Vietnamese dictionary comes from, like, the Chinese word for flat rice noodle fun. That I found really interesting, that indeed it, you know, you can't have just a bowl of broth and call it a pho. You have to have the noodles. The noodles are actually the name, right? The, the noodles are definitive. And 
Vietnamese languages also, it's like, you know, because it was between Chinese, Vietnamese, and then there's like the French, the Western overlay too. And so you had like a lot of the soup vendors were Chinese and they were Cantonese speaking. And so they were like, you know, and they were speaking sort of like hybrid Cantonese, Vietnamese. <laughs> and they eventually, um, the word fun eventually became because if you mispronounce fun as fun in Vietnamese, it means excrement. Ooh. And so you oh. really, you know, if you are like hawking your wares, you know, every day in the streets of Hanoi, um, you want to make sure that people understand what you're offering them. Right, right. Interesting. Huh. In this, um, I, I see why, yes, it, it kind of took on a whole different, you know, drop the N and change the pronunciation, and there, <laughs> there you have it. Um, what, in this, so then it was really the flat noodles are, are pretty much the the standard bearer of the, of the, pho, the you know, like the, the Hanoi pho. Well, right? no, I mean, of, of when, when it started, the pho means both the noodle soup as well as the noodles. Right. And it's very clear to understand that when you're at a file shop, and oftentimes they'll have the soup section, which is what most people see as like pho. But then there's like all of these other dishes, such as stir-fried pho and pan-fried pho. And in Vietnam now, there are like fresh rice noodle, or fresh pho, which are fresh um, rice noodle sheets that have um, a filling of stir-fried beef and lettuce. Mm-hmm. There's deep fried pho, which are the noodles dipped in batter and then deep fried with a stir fry on top. Yeah. There's a pho cocktail that like picks up on the spices. So there's a lot of duality in Vietnamese culture, and a lot of not even just duality, but multiple, multi-dimensional existence in terms of Vietnamese identity. And so pho is like represents that because people are like, well, you know, it's the noodle soup, yes, but it was originally based upon the noodles. And so we're going to do these things with the noodles because if you're an entrepreneurial street vendor, um, you know, and everybody's selling pho, you need to do something a little bit different. All right. Got to <laughs> so capture the market. In the 1930s, <laughs> people were making stir-fried pho noodles. Wow, that's amazing. And that was a pho dish. Huh? Well, what flavors in I mean, so, cause so now here we have um, the, you know, the ramen broth and the ramen noodles and, and other Asian soups with noodles. What flavors or ingredients make the pho uniquely Vietnamese? Well, um, you know, you've got, again, like the overlay of the um, spices that are used in um, southern China and northern Vietnam. So the star anise, the, um, the cassia, then you've got peppercorns and um, clove and fennel um, and coriander seed. So a lot of these spices, you know, when you parse them and, or you actually think of them in, in a, as a group, they're like spices that are part of um, the five-spice blend, to tell mm-hmm. you the truth. There's mm-hmm. a certain kind of like, hey, I recognize that, those spices. And um, the pho has a sort of, um, there is a certain health and medicinal aspect to it, because like a chicken pho with, um, is, is very tonic-like 
in Vietnam, and it's the way how I learned to make it and eat it as well. So there's a lot of ginger and the aromatics, you know, you've got your onion or your shallot in there as well to um, brew up in the broth. There's this technique that, so you've got the Chinese spices. You've got the, the byproducts of slaughtering the cows, uh, a circumstance of the French being there. Then you've got this intriguing um, charring of the ginger and onion or shallot. Um, in Vietnam, they primarily use these shallots that are the size of, like, boiling onions. Mm-hmm. I would not want to be cooking in Vietnam just because those are like a pain in the ass to um, peel. Peel, (laughs) And then you're like charring them over a brazier too. So um, anyway, so so that business of of charring those aromatics, and it's not so that they are going to impart color because you're going to peel them, but they're converting the sugars a little bit in those um, in those very strong flavored ingredients and partially cook them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I feel like that technique was something that the Vietnamese may have picked up from the notion of the French, like, you know, making uh, a roasting bones or something. Right. Gives a little more body to that to that. A little stock, bit more body. You know, but, right. like, if you go and you, like, roast your bones for, for pho broth, it becomes very heavy and it kind of wipes out the spices. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it tilts the other way. Right. So so far as like this this sort of in, subtle dance of flavors and textures and spicing, and then there's the fish sauce in there as well um, that lends that umami burst yes. um, to the broth. Yeah, interesting. Well, you've uh, I've gone into um, places that will have pho on the menu, but they won't be primarily a, a pho joint. But after lunchtime, they don't serve it anymore. And you've referred to pho as the breakfast of champions. Is this a dish in Vietnam that's eaten only for breakfast? It is often eaten for breakfast, but then um, the because the uh, pho shop will like they, they've made their broth, and then um, they'll just serve whatever they have, and then they close. <laughs> and it's when Vietnam, in certain parts of Vietnam, like Saigon, it's either hot or hotter, and so you want to eat your hot foods like noodle soups in the morning. Makes sense. Yeah, and and or in the evening, um, in the winter time, um, you some you could conceivably have uh, in the midday in Hanoi, but not so much. It's more it's it's like this morning thing as well as um, evening chaser after a meal, uh-huh. <laughs> or maybe you've been out, you know, and you want a little something. Great dish um, after but being the, out. The, right? the, the shops like will um, will traditional ones will only serve what they have for that day, and then they'll close. And sometimes they'll have another batch going, and then they'll reopen. So um, you actually are going to some really great kind of traditional spots that say, you know what, we only have this going um, at lunch, and then in the evening we're going to switch out. Because it takes a long time to make this broth when you're making it for a restaurant quantity. Oh, for sure. All right, well, I want to talk more about um, about this wonderful soup and some of the, you know, the more cultural sides of the dish within Vietnam. So stay tuned. We're going to take a short break. Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? 
lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh cheese curds or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com, and as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Andrea Nagoyan, and her new book is The Faw Cookbook, Everything You Want to Know, and some wonderful recipes, of course. We wouldn't exclude recipes out of this whole discussion. Uh, and Andrea, one thing that I, I thought was very interesting, and you talked about it um, in your book or in one of your articles, and that is the meaning of of Viet. We talked about how pho, the word pho came to be and 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 the differences in, in that and the different meanings. But what does Viet actually mean in, in the name it's, of um, Vietnam? Well, you know, every time I write a, um, a Vietnamese cookbook, I have to explain to my editor and uh, copy editor <laughs> and proofreader that I'm going to stay firm on using the word Viet. It's a term of pride. And so um, Vietnam has been called a lot of different names. The country has been called a lot of different names over its um, many you know, eons of existence. But um, one of the terms that the Vietnamese have always come back to is this notion that we are Viet people. We are the people of Vietnam. And so um, when I use that term to describe something that's Vietnamese, I'm really, you know, saying that I'm taking, making a stand for, for the spirit of the place where I was born, of my ancestry. And it's similar to, say, the people of Thai ancestry calling themselves, we are the Thais. Mm-hmm. We are, you know, Thai people. Mm-hmm. So Vietnamese people say, we are Viet people. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't say we are, you know, the people, uh, we are Vietnamese. So, I, so when I use the word Viet, it's almost like this hybrid use of language between Vietnamese and English. And hopefully someday the term Viet will be in the um, English dictionary, and so I don't have to fight with my editors about it anymore. <laughs> Well, it certainly makes sense to me, and I'm and I'm glad you're standing by your standing your ground on that one. Um, you gave it when well, you actually went um, took a trip to Hanoi to visit a relative, um, and went with a friend who um, a couple of cute stories when you got when I asked about the breakfast of champions. You took this elaborate trip to find the roots of of. Pho in in a particular village, Vancouver village. What what happened when you took that trip? 
Well, I was, you know, the very excited. I was like the bright-eyed um, researcher thinking, okay, I'm going to go in search of the birthplace of Fa. Who else is going to go with me? <laughs> so I round up some friends and who were willing to, and I was traveling with my um, my stylist and, and photographer, Karen Shinto. So we all got on, into this car, um, and we had a, a driver who was willing to also be our, um, our uh, go-between, um, our fixer. And we took a drive out to uh, a province called Nam Din. And whenever you see... The word Nam Din, spelled N-A-M-D-I-N-H, that signals like very northern Vietnamese pho, because a lot of people say that Nam Din province is where pho originated. Mm. So I thought, let's go to Nam Din. And the capital of Nam Din province, and provinces are in Vietnam, are so the equivalent of like states in the United States, okay? See, we drove out to Nam Din, and we... Um, Made a, we had a list, so my friends had gathered their intelligence, and we drove around town, and we had gotten a, a somewhat late start. But we arrived in Nam Din at like 8.30 in the morning, okay? So we're driving around town, and we're trying to find faux shops that were on our hit list, and no one was open or they had been closed. They were had, like, moved operations to Hanoi. And one place that we um, arrived at, um, the people said, oh, well, we're done. We're done by, like, you know, 8 o'clock, 7.30. So you want to get fall, you got to arrive really early. <laughs> really early. <laughs> really early. And we don't have anything left. And and the driver, our fixer, Dan, he said, well, don't you have anything to taste? And, and these people were like, no, are you kidding? And I said, well, I came all the way from Hanoi. And he's like, yeah, come back come back earlier. And he was kind of gruff, but he was also like, you know, kind of proud of what he was saying because he was like, I don't have anything for you now, but you can come back. Now, you know, these are our shops that um, uh, run their their energy source for heating up these pots are coal-fed. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's pretty rustic. Mm-hmm. And so, but they have cell phones. So then... Um, our driver said, well, what if we come again another day and we called you before we arrive so that you'd set some aside for us because we're coming all the way from Hanoi. And the shop owner says, are you kidding? We don't pick up the phone when we're in service. You just have to get here early. <laughs> and, 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 he, and that's all he said. And then he, like, went back and had, had his breakfast kind of thing. And so then we took a drive out to this little village called Ban Ku, which is about 30, 40, 30 minutes to 45 minutes um, outside of Nam Din, the city of Nam Din, but it's still in the same province. And um, it's just absolutely gorgeous, past rice paddies and church spires. Um, and so we go to this little village, and we're in this, like, SUV. The SUV can barely pass through the, re- the roads because it's a very rustic village. And there's no one there making pho. And, in fact, like, as we're approaching the village, um, the only sign that, that there's pho around is that there's this white building with the red lettering of pho. Um, on it, announcing that you're sort of near a pho place, but there's nothing that says you may be arriving at the origin of pho, the national <laughs> soup of the country, and there's nothing like that. 
<laughs> so I, I took a photo of that building, as, and it's um, in the opening page of the book, uh-huh. and it looks like it was Photoshop, but it was not. Um, that's how we, we found the building. So we, we take the turn off to the village, and there's a little sign of a photo shop. So we pause, and then they say, well, we're, we're related to the, you know, famous photo shop in Hanoi, and we've, like, moved our operations to Hanoi. So there's, like, there's no photo shops in these towns. In the birth of pho, there's no photo shops. Right. There, there's no photo shop. And, but we did find um, a pho uh, noodle vendor uh, maker. And their home was the biggest, most beautiful home in the little village. And um, they welcomed us in and let us um, see their operations. And, and I had these romantic visions of the noodles being handmade, you know, over a steaming pot of water where you're ladling the batter onto, like, this sheet of fabric. And they're like, oh, no, we use a machine. <laughs> And they said, but, you know, we used to have to grind the rice by hand. Wow. But now, a few years ago, this young man said to me, we got a machine to grind the rice, and it's stone ground, but it's run by electricity. And he said, and of course we switched. And, you know, the, and these people are, uh, I think sometimes that we have these visions of, these romantic visions of, of rustic foods and how they ought to be prepared, but for the people who actually do prepare them still, yeah. it's an evolutionary process, and they need to make a living. Right. And they were so kind to welcome us in because we just appeared at their doorstep that day. Oh, interesting. Well, it goes to show how many noodles need to be made for such a popular dish. And in fact, how how often do you would you get a sense of, or did you get a sense of, how often does the average Vietnamese um, uh, person, I guess, who even has a kitchen, eat this dish? You know, they um, they regularly eat it, but it's not an everyday thing because there mm-hmm. are a lot of other um, Vietnamese foods to eat. Sure. And um, and it it also tends to be uh, more of something that is. Um, Urban, um, but even when I was in the the, ta- the city of Da Nang, I was in a cab and I said, "So I'm here looking at you know I, I always tell these people what I do and they find it to be very novel that I would come to Vietnam and write cookbooks." <laughs> so they always kind of giggle, <laughs> and then I say, "No, I really want to know." And I, I asked this cab driver, "So, so do you eat pho?" And he says, "Yes." And I said, "How often do you eat it?" And he said, "Not very often because it's expensive." Hmm. The reason being, we in the United States think that pho is inexpensive. Right. But in, uh, in Vietnam, beef and chicken are expensive. And, and when you go to a market, you're going to see more pork and seafood. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in the cities, you'll may, you may see some beef, but it's not like you, you know, would see it often. And it's expensive. It's, you know, a lot of times, like, it could be imported from Australia. Um, but people don't eat, you know, they're not... They're not going to to cook up a lot of of this stuff themselves, but to actually make it and serve it um, in a restaurant situation tends to like be a pricey option for folks. And so this this man said, I eat other um, local noodle products because he's in Da Nang and that's like in the southern part of the country. And he and he sees that pho is a Saigon and primarily a Saigon or Hanoi dish. Uh-huh. So that's the other thing, too. It's, it's very regional, and it's quite – people, you know, people in Vietnam still don't travel around as much as you think that they would. Hmm. And, and beef, beef and chicken being the two primary styles and types of pho that people consider um, 
the actual dishes? I mean, I know you talk about and you have recipes for so many different variations of the dish. Yes, but beef and chicken are the ones that, you know, are still like the go-to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there are you, variations. Right, and you made, um, I guess you told a story that you were eating, um, thinking about your book. <laughs> so, um, wonderful book. You have to see it um, and buy it and learn from it. You were, I think, with a relative, and um, he made some mention, it was some fancy pho that you were served, and he was thinking about, Oh, he wished he was think, harking back to his hand, the original Hanoi foodways. Yes, so that what was would my they cousin um, Hui. He's in his um, he's in his late fifties now, and he was born and raised and still lives in Hanoi. And he sees like the um, the pho now as being overcomplicated and too fussy. So he remembers the pho of his youth, which was these just a bowl of noodles and really good broth and um, slices of flavorful cooked beef. Nowadays in Hanoi, over the decades, like they serve pho with um, these Chinese uh, deep-fried breadsticks, which are sort of like the the combination of churros and croutons. <laughs> And, and they're oftentimes like like in New York and, and other places where Chinatowns are like you would see um, these deep fried breadsticks served with congee, and they're they're fatty and and it's like a donut, okay? Mm-hmm. And you dip it in, and it's this lends this richness. And that practice developed during the Vietnam War era in Hanoi when people didn't have um, rice noodles or rice. And so, but they had wheat subsidies from the Rus- from Russia, and so um, some some Chinese um, uh, people said, "Hey, let's make like these Chinese breadsticks, these crawlers, and sell them to pho shops." And that's when that practice started. And then so my cousin Hui's like, "You know, I really would love to go back to those days when it was just really, really simple, mm-hmm. and really good." Yeah. And so many influences, it's always hard to go back, you know. But um, what, what, in your opinion, are some of the um, the better, some of the better variations, or let's say, welcome additions, uh, and opposing your your cousin, but <laughs> saying some of the additions and variations that have become popular um, that you that you approve of, that you feel are are the good embellishments. You know, like I. Um in the book, what I did was I thought, okay, in Vietnam, they're pushing the pho envelope more than we think they are, you know, because they're, they're not sitting around, like, wearing conical hats and, <laughs> like, <laughs> just serving pho from shoulder pole situations. Right. I mean, they're doing really interesting things for pho, like the pho, fresh pho noodle rolls that um, are very popular with young people in Vietnam. And I went and I tasted them in Hanoi, in this area where, like, we know it as um, this lake area where John McCain was shot down during the Vietnam War. But for the Vietnamese now, for young people, they go there to hang out and eat, like, pho, um, non-traditional pho dishes, like these little rolls. And, um, and when I was also in, and that was really, they were just delightful. So there's a recipe for that, and I also like tried a pho cocktail that I thought was just like initially I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone's <laughs> making a pho cocktail, but it worked, and it was a bartender um, who's very well known in Hanoi who came up with this idea of blending pho spices and um, with with spirits, 
And so that's why there are fog cocktail recipes in the book, because um, I created my own, because I thought, oh, wow, you know, this really does work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are all the stir-fried and deep-fried pho dishes. Um, and in the United States here, we're doing incredible pho things, too. So I've had, like, fried rice um, that um, have been made with, um, like, pho broth. And then at a pho shop, often a chicken pho shop, there's oftentimes like a chicken and rice dish. And it totally makes sense, right? Because right. you've got the broth. <laughs> so yeah. you're, what are you going to do? You, you need another dish. You make chicken and rice. Yeah, it can't be bad. I mean, <laughs> no, right. And then in another dish that I was really blown away by when I was in um, Vietnam was this pho chicken noodle salad where the pho broth is on the side and then you've got the pho noodles and then you've got the poached chicken and then, but the, the sauce that, that dresses the um, noodles is like this tangy, spicy soy sauce thing. It's a very modern thing, again, that's very in with young people mm. in, in Hanoi. Um, I've had like seafood pho here in the, in the U.S. that um, I initially was just completely disgusted by, I have to tell you, because all they, the uh, restaurants did was like put seafood in beef pho broth. Oh, no. It was bizarre. <laughs> yeah. and, but the thing is that it taught me that um, pho spices go with seafood. Hmm. And it's possible. Hmm. And I, I had, like, this whole, like, discussion with my mom. And she's like, don't put it in there. Don't put it in there. <laughs> no, I could see chicken. 80. Yeah, I could see chicken <laughs> broth. But, you know, but the, but the beef broth, uh, well. If well, and then I thought to myself, for people who are pescatarians, that would just be such a letdown. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I created a, um, a purely seafood pho. That is absolutely delicious. Oh, I, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. and there are also pho dishes that, um, for example, there's one that I rec- that I created from my mother's memories. It's a stir-fried beef. Um, I call it a wok-kiss beef pho because what it is is you've got your pho noodles and then you stir-fry the beef with shallot or onion and some garlic, and then you put that on top of the pho noodles, and then you pour the broth over uh, into the bowl, and it's just amazingly good. And that's a dish that she remembers from her childhood um, in northern Vietnam. Oh, that's wonderful. And it's it's so wonderful to to learn something like that from, you know, that's been passed on, and, and that now you recreated it in this book, which, you know, people can can learn from that. Speaking of your mother, you, you told a story about a cute analogy between pho and a mistress. What was that about? Well, in <laughs> Vietnam, when you go around, like, you oftentimes see the signs for pho and rice. And so it's because they go together. So, so like you said, Linda, let's say you serve pho in the morning and in, in the evening you serve rice dishes, right? Right. And so... Um, the, so you always see these signs together, and, and it's pho and gum. So there's like this strange joke in Vietnamese, among Vietnamese people, and that, um, that rice is the dutiful wife that you can always rely on, and pho is the flirty mistress that you slip away to visit. <laughs> and so the, your, your relationship with pho and rice is akin to your romantic relationships. And, hmm. and so um, 
I was thinking about that, and I asked my parents about it. And my dad, who's like in his late 80s, he starts like wiggling his hips to, to say, this is pho. And my mom's like, no, you cannot have pho all the time. <laughs> it would be overboard. She said something like that. And it was very, very sweet, you know. And, um, but, you know, pho has all of these meanings in our culture. It's not just a noodle soup. It's romantic relationships. It's... Um, Espionage during oh, yeah. um, the Vietnam War. All these political implications as well. Yeah, uh, the yeah. French and the French, you know, coming in and, and um, you know, with the beef. I mean, it's just the the things that are involved in in a soup. You know, all in a bowl of soup. It's it's marvelous. It's wonderful, and it tastes good. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. At the end of the day, you know what? Fa endures um, because it tastes good. That's right. That's right. Well, and you've done a beautiful job in, in relating that to us in this in this wonderful book, um, the Fa Cookbook. And I, it's again, it's by Ten Speed Ten Speed Press. And I encourage people to take a look at it. And I, you're making me very hungry for a bowl of pho, I must say. And it is lunchtime here, so <laughs> I'm, I missed it for breakfast, so I will have to indulge for lunchtime. And thank you, Andrea. Andrea Nagoyan, thank you so much for sharing all this information. It has been an education and a treat. Well, my pleasure, Linda. Thank you so much. I'm Linda Palaccio, and you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. And don't forget, you can log in to listen to the podcast anytime on heritageradionetwork.org, or you can download us for free at iTunes or Stitcher.com. And while you're at it, why not write a 10-star review, a 5-star review? No, do they have 10-star reviews? (laughs) I'm jumping up there. But at any rate, why not give us a good review? All right, and thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.